Um, well, let's begin uh, with, a, with a, a word of prayer. Gracious God, we meet this morning to study your word and to learn how to be faithful followers of Jesus. Open our hearts and minds to receive a full understanding of Sabbath and give us the courage to practice Sabbath. Amen. We are in week four of our First in Focus series on the Sabbath. Uh, if you've been with us the last three weeks, uh, you know that we opened with a, a big group session. We had two weeks of small group discussions, and now we're going to kick off the second half with a big group session and two more weeks of small group discussions. We have food, we have uh, coffee in the back, so at any point if you feel like you need to wake yourself up, hopefully that won't be an issue, but if you feel that need, feel free to go to the back and get food and coffee during the presentation. I also want to remind you that if you do not have a regular Sunday school class, there is a group, uh, a small group, that will be meeting in the bride's room uh, the next two weeks. And so if you would like to continue these discussions and you don't have a regular class, please feel free to join us in the bride's room and we'll have those conversations there. Just as a reminder, we've been talking these last three weeks about the principle of Sabbath. These next three weeks are focused on the practice of Sabbath. And so our first meeting, we discussed an introduction to the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? In week two, we discussed the Sabbath in the Old Testament. Week three was the Sabbath in the New Testament. And now we start week four. This week, we'll talk about the Sabbath alternative from anxiety to abundance. Now, just as a note, Rebecca and I did not coordinate our topic. So if you hear the sermon, there's a lot in it about anxiety. There's also a lot right now about anxiety. That was the Holy Spirit. Week five, we'll be talking about Sabbath in the city, doing less in a culture of more. And for week six, we'll be entering God's rest, rituals and rhythms for busy families. Another reminder, there are several resources that Dr. Bonfilio recommended the first session, and I want to highlight those again. If you have found the study to be helpful, uh, the two books that he recommended uh, at the beginning was the Dan Allender, Sabbath, the Ancient pra Practices, and Abraham Joshua Heschel's The Sabbath. And both of these books, I believe, are available at the Mustard Seed, or you can find them, I'm sure, at other bookstores. Two additional books that you will notice in some of the lessons are Marianne McKibben Dana's Sabbath in the Suburbs and Wayne Muller's Sabbath Restoring the Sacred Rhythms of Rest. Those last two books have a lot of very uh, practical advice on how you might uh, incorporate Sabbath into your weekly rhythm. And with that, let's begin. So I want to start today with an observation. And this is an observation from my own life, and it's an observation from some of my conversations with you all. And it's that we live in anxious times. Uh, we can't deny that if we turn on our television, there's reasons to be anxious that come screaming at us. If we just look around at our own nuclear families, there's reasons to be anxious. In the, in the American culture, anxiety is not just a, a an occasional issue, it's an epidemic. Uh, the National Institute of Mental Health says that anxiety is one of the top uh, issues in mental health today in our country. And one in five Americans are affected by anxiety disorder. Now, 
four out of five Americans, the other four out of five, I'm sure also face anxiety, either on a weekly or even daily basis. And so you might find yourself like Charlie Brown, sitting bolt upright in the middle of the night, declaring my anxieties have anxieties. Good Charlie Brown. So we asked ourselves this question this morning, and I want you guys to actually turn to your neighbor and ask this question of each other. What makes you anxious? together, what kind of anxieties came up? Sorry? Taxes? Yeah. Taxes? Help. Help. Raising children and kind of what the future holds for them in these days of social media and stimulation and how to keep them grounded. The anxiety on how to raise our children in this modern society. Any others? Yeah. Future of the country. Others? Yes. The drought. The drought. Yes. Thank you. 
Time pressures. Time pressures. We'll talk about that. All right. So this is a short list on the screen, but I know that there are many more spoken and unspoken that we, uh, that we have. What I want to suggest is that a lot of our anxiety stems out of our knowledge, our recognition that we're limited, that there's only so much we can control, there's only so much we can do, right? Uh, and in fact, we live in a world that's marked by scarcity. There seems sometimes to be never enough. And I think there are three big categories that I would describe of anxiety, ways that anxiety is driven by scarcity. The first is time. Time is scarce. We have 24 hours in a day. We only have so many years of life. How do we make the most of that? Money is scarce. Uh, whether you have it or you don't have it, it's scarce. And there's always, it seems that there's room to have more. If someone asked me how much money would be enough, I would say one more dollar, right? <laughs> power is scarce. Again, whether you have it or not, it seems that power is held by a few. And everyone else just gets whatever's left over. Uh, we are surrounded by scarcity and we experience it every day. But one day that I know, that I noticed that we experience scarcity, actually, is the day after Thanksgiving. How many of you, you could raise your hand, how many of you have ever been shopping in a store, a real store, the day after Thanksgiving? Yeah, everyone that's raising their hands like, oh, don't do it, don't do it. All right, so... So you've maybe experienced this, right? <laughs> maybe. Um, we're familiar with the idea of a door buster, which means you get to the store early, you stand in line in the cold, and then they open the doors, everyone pushes and shoves and runs in and steps on each other to try to get the, what, like 100 televisions that are half off. Because that's the idea of, of this kind of a sale. And it's not just those doorbusters. Every, uh, throughout the day after Thanksgiving, there are sales like this. If you get here by 10 a.m., if you get here by 1 p.m., you get the sale. And so we see that scarcity, in, in some ways, it, it kind of motivates us. But we might also observe that scarcity causes us to relate to each other in a way we might not normally relate. We could even say that scarcity and anxiety related to that impacts our relationships with each other and with God. So we might think, so what? Anxiety is around us. This is how the world works. We just have to kind of go with it. There's nothing we can do maybe to change that. We might feel that way. Uh, but I want to push against that and say that anxiety isn't just something in the air. It actually has real power. And it has power to change who we are, how we relate to the world, and how we relate to God. This is a picture from the uh, a food line of the great, in the Great Depression. And I know some of you may have lived through the Great Depression, but most of you look like you might be a little too young. Um, so we'll say you probably have parents or grandparents who lived during the Great Depression. Right. I had a grandmother that lived in the time of the Great Depression. She was a child when it began. She was a young adult when it ended. Fifty years later, she moved out of her home, and we were left with the task of cleaning out her closets. 
And if you've ever been left with this task, you know that folks from that generation, they save everything. Everything. And we found things in her closet from 1960. We said, Grandma, why do you have this? She says, don't throw it away. Somebody could use it someday. This is the power of anxiety. She was anxious for a significant part of her childhood. And she has remained anxious about, I want to make sure I have enough, even as an older woman. The Israelites felt the power of anxiety, and it shaped them, and it influenced who they were. And we, uh, we talk about that, that there were 10 plagues to get the Israelites out of Egypt, and there's 10 commandments to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And this is, this is, part, of, uh, this is part of the change they're undergoing, is how to deal with this anxiety of having never enough. Now, we know the story. Uh, the, the Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt. God calls Moses. Moses, go down, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses goes to Egypt, there's 10 plagues. Hebrew people come out of Egypt. They go into what? Wilderness? Yeah, the wilderness, right? And they journey in the wilderness. And when they get to the wilderness, they find out why no one lives in the wilderness. Because there's no food, right? There's no food. And God says, that's okay. No food, that's okay. I'll provide the food. And so what does God offer? Yeah, I think it's on the screen. Um, so, So God offers manna. And so this is the deal. They go out. Day one, they get manna. Day two, they get manna. Day three, they get manna. Day four, day five, day six, they get two times as much manna. On day seven, they rest. They get no manna. They don't have to pick it up because they got enough on day six. Okay. Now, if you're an Israelite and you were in Egypt before, and in Egypt, you work for Pharaoh. This is who you serve, more or less. Uh, And the Hebrew here is really clear. In Egypt, the Israelites serve Pharaoh. In the wilderness, the Israelites serve God. It's the same word. It gets translated differently in our, in our Bibles, but it's the same word in the Hebrew. So you're in Egypt, and you're serving Pharaoh. And how you get your food, how you get your shelter, how you serve Pharaoh is that you go out on day one, you make bricks. You go out on day two, you make bricks. Day three, you make bricks. Day four, day five, day six, day seven, you make bricks. Day one, you make more bricks, and you keep making bricks every single day. There is no break. There is no change. Let me fix this. There we go. Um, There is no break, and there is no change. When you go into the wilderness, and now you are serving God, suddenly, instead of making bricks every day, you're gathering manna. Okay, no problem. You're working for a different boss. You go out on day one, you gather manna. Day two, manna. Day three, manna. Day four, manna. Day five, manna. Day six, manna. Day seven, God says rest. And and your whole life, you've been making bricks every day. That's how you made your livelihood. Now you're going to gather manna, and now God says rest. And you're like, "Mm, really? I thought I knew how the world works. That's not what I was trained to do. Moses tells them day seven is a rest. And so we imagine some of the people probably sleep in. They're like, fine, great, I don't have to go out and get manna. Excellent, I'm sleeping in. But some of the people don't. There's a group of people, and you might imagine yourself among them. You might feel this way. They say, you know, Moses is a great guy. God seems to really be talking through him. I think he's got most of it right, but what if Moses is wrong? What if we should go out, and we don't go out, and then we don't have enough, right? And so there's this fear, there's this anxiety. 
So some of the people go out to gather manna anyway, even though they've been told not to. There's a feeling that even though there is enough, even though God has said there is enough, I will provide, there's a fear that there won't be enough. And just as they had that fear, I think we have that fear today as well. And so we propose the Sabbath as an alternative. In a culture of anxiety, Sabbath becomes an alternative lifestyle. Sabbath is the outward and visible mark of the Israelites being people of God, people who trust in God. And I think it can be the same for us as Christians. Uh, there are three ways that Sabbath is thought about in, in our scripture. And we've studied these ways, but I want to give you guys sort of a, a list or a framework uh, as, as we're thinking about what does it mean to practice Sabbath. The first thing we think about when we think about Sabbath is Sabbath is rest, right? Most of the books that you read about Sabbath talk about reclaiming Sabbath as a form of rest. Uh, Exodus 20.10 says that, the, that on the Sabbath you are to observe it, keep it holy, and on the seventh day you shall do no work. So it's very clear that, that rest is important as a part of Sabbath. In fact, the Old Testament, I think Ryan mentioned, has about 39 uh, rules that you have to follow. These are the things you don't do on Sabbath because it's a day of rest. The second uh, aspect of Sabbath is worship. Leviticus 23.3 says, On six days work will be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. And this word really means a calling together of the assembly of God's people. So worship has traditionally been an important part of Sabbath and our Sabbath practice and how we make it a holy and consecrated day to God. I mentioned that in the, uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people, they serve Pharaoh and then they serve God. In our Bibles, when we translate that word serve, it's translated as worship. So we understand service to God to include worship. And it's not individual worship, it's, it's communal worship. The third aspect of Sabbath, and I think the one that does not get a lot of attention, and you may have studied this, but you may not remember, or you may have studied it and said, eh, I don't know, I don't know if that applies. The third, the third aspect is Sabbath as release. And I really want to emphasize this because I think this was important to Jesus. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain. So in Deuteronomy 15, there is this uh, Sabbath is expanded. The meaning of Sabbath is expanded. And it's not just seventh day that you rest and seventh day that you worship. This is how it's expanded. In Deuteronomy 15, every seventh year, debts are forgiven and slaves are let free. Seven years, at the end of seven years, there is a release of power. In Leviticus 25, there's, the idea of Sabbath is taken to an even greater extreme, and, and this is what we read. You shall count seven weeks of, of years. Seven weeks, of, it should be seven years. So seven weeks of seven years, seven times seven is, we're not, we got some math majors here. All right, 49. So 49 years. On the next year, the 50th year, we might call it the Sabbath of Sabbaths. The 50th year is the Jubilee. And the Jubilee is like a year of Sabbath. 
Okay, we, we can imagine it that way. And the way the Jubilee is described is that it's a year of, of rest. It's a year of kind of a celebration of worship. And it's a year where all property is reallocated equally among all the people. This is really dramatic. Uh, if you think about the city of Atlanta within the I-285 loop, if we were to reallocate all the land in Atlanta to all the people that live within Atlanta, it comes out to about an acre a person. It's a lot of land. Uh, and not only is it a lot of land, it's a lot of money, right? Because when you reallocate, you give someone something that's valuable, that's worth, that's worth worthwhile. And if that person was a slave, if they had nothing, now they have something. So Sabbath includes this idea that we release the structures of power and we give power to those who have no power. And we release people from under their burdens. It's gone out again. I'm sorry. And that's, that's the third, I think, the third part of Sabbath. And so, on the point of release, I want y'all to see this. Maybe. Maybe? No? No. What's going on? It's not going. All right. I'm just going to advance it, and we'll, hopefully it'll come back to me. Let me just talk to it. So we studied... Um, we studied Luke 13 last week in our New Testament series. And in Luke 13, Jesus um, heals a woman on the Sabbath. He goes into a synagogue, he heals her. And it says that she's unable to stand up straight. And he, he puts his hands on her, he heals her. And it's great for her, she's really happy about it. The synagogue leader is not so happy. And the synagogue leader says, look, on six days you will work, and on the seventh you, you take Sabbath, you rest. You come to the synagogue, you worship, you rest. This is what you do. And when we see this story, what we see is a conflict between these ideas that Sabbath is for rest and worship, or is Sabbath for rest, worship, and release. And so I would make the argument that Jesus takes Sabbath very seriously, and he takes Sabbath seriously in all three ways. So when we think about how do we practice Sabbath, Let's not be on the side of the people that criti criticize Jesus. Because that group are the ones that said, it's just for rest, it's just for worship. And Jesus says, no, there's something else, something else here to pay attention to. Let's see if it'll work now. Okay. Well, you know, maybe this will sink in if we just keep it here. <laughs> maybe, maybe, it's time, maybe it's a sign. Uh, let me, let me fix this, because I think it's going to be hard to keep going. Okay. All right. Okay. And so we get to uh, one of our authors, Wayne Muller, who wrote in his book, Sabbath, even in the modern world, Sabbath can be a refuge. Sabbath time can become our refuge. During the Sabbath, we set aside a sanctuary in time. You've heard, I think, this, this phrase before. Disconnected from the frenzy of consumption and accomplishment and consecrate our day as an offering for the healing of all beings. Again, it's not just a day of rest and worship. It's also a day of release and healing. All right, and so 
we have this issue of anxiety. We feel anxiety. We have a lot of scarcity in our life. I think Sabbath offers an, a, a counter, it counteracts some of that anxiety. Time is scarce. Money is scarce. Power is scarce. Sabbath says we can rest anyway. Sabbath says that we can worship God and not our work. And Sabbath says that when we see people who are being bound by powers that control them, we can release those powers. So if time is scarce, how could any of us possibly practice Sabbath, right? This is the big question. We might all agree Sabbath's a great idea. That's a great idea. I would love to have a day that's free. But how could I possibly fit it in? And so the advice here, this isn't anything, it's not rocket science. This is exactly the advice uh, you might follow if you were trying to keep your New Year's resolution, right? So January the 1st, you go to the gym, you're all pumped up about the gym or whatever it is. And by February 1st, you kind of stop coming, right? Um, and, and it's, I think, because of a lack of, perhaps a little bit of a lack of planning or making space. And so when we make space for Sabbath in the same way, we have to prepare our time. The uh, Israelites didn't just wake up on the seventh day and decide not to gather manna. They gathered double the day before. They prepared, it seems like most of them at least, prepared for the Sabbath. We prioritize. We have to be intentional about this. So something comes up, anything could come up, and it might say, we might say, oh, you know, I could do my Sabbath practice, or I could go play golf, or I could, I don't know, go shopping or something. Um, we do have to be intentional about it, and we have to continue to, to make it a priority and decide that it is a priority. And finally, we have to protect the time. Uh, and I think this is, is actually quite hard. Um, most people agree that yes, okay, we prepared for it, we prioritized it, and then something came up. And maybe it was important, maybe it was kind of important, maybe it just felt urgent at the moment. Uh, something came up and I felt like I couldn't say no, right? And we're not great at saying no, I'm not great at saying no. It comes out in some really wishy-washy ways. Sometimes I try to say no, and before it's over with, that person has convinced me that I actually said yes. You know, and then you end up on a committee. I, I don't know how this works. <laughs> right? um, I understand that there are uh, session and deacon nominations. I'm not suggesting that you say no to those, but you know, uh, it happens, right? We, we try to say no, we end up saying yes. So I want to practice with you guys saying no. Like literally saying no. And so this is, this is it. I was, I was responding to an RSVP for a birthday party. And I thought, gosh, I can't just say no. I have to like give an excuse or something. I have to say some reason that I can't be there. Um, it's really hard to say no, just an unqualified no. So we're going to practice as a group. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. The answer is always what? No. no. Okay, that's good. All right. <laughs> Some people were asleep. Now they're awake. All right. Uh, so, first question. Is today Friday? No. no. All right. Is it raining outside? No. No, we wish it was. Uh, I went to Georgia Tech, so I'm really interested. Is uh, UGA going to beat Georgia Tech next Saturday? No? All right. That was tough. A few people were like, I can't say no. I'm just abstaining. I can't. Um, but on a serious note, on a serious note, uh, it's hard to say no. 
Uh, it's hard to say no with there are commitments. Your friend wants to do this. Your family wants you to do that. Somebody asks you to host the entire family for Christmas. It's kind of hard to say no. <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> He's got it. He's, you, a plus. He passes. It can be hard to say no. But this is your homework. And gosh, we are early. Wow, this has flown by. Okay, I'll give you extra time. This is your homework. Your homework is to say no to one source of anxiety this week. One source of anxiety. So that can be, that could be somebody's asking you to do something, right? I do this, do this, take on this responsibility. You have permission to say no. You can disappoint people. That's okay. You can disappoint them. Um, because sometimes you have to say no to what's less important to say yes to what's more important. You can say no. You might mean saying no to yourself. It might mean that you have all of these worries going through your mind. You have to say no at some point and say, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm choosing not to. I'm choosing to say no to anxiety. The second homework is to say yes to one act of rest, worship, or release. This might mean that you're kind of, you're kind of you know, cracking open your laptop and your kids are like, no, 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 come play, come play. You can say yes to play. You can say yes to that uh, restoration of your relationship with your kids. It might mean that you, are, uh, you found yourself very frazzled. There's a lot of things you could be doing. There's a bunch of errands you could run, and you choose instead, I'm going to just take this time to rest. I'm going to carve out 30 minutes. I'm going to carve out an hour to rest. It may mean that you choose. I know it's tough. Weekend after Thanksgiving, everyone's kind of lethargic from the turkey. Maybe it means you choose to come to worship next Sunday, right? Maybe it means that you choose to uh, participate in a way you might not have, you weren't really feeling like it, but you choose that as an act of Sabbath, as part of your Sabbath practice. And finally, this may be a week to consider how might a regular Sabbath practice shape you. In our small groups, we'll be talking about what are those specifics? What, how do we, uh, what are the actual actions that we might take that fit into this model of rest and worship and release? What might we actually be doing during our Sabbath time? But we can take this week ahead to consider how would it shape you? What if, instead of being shaped by anxiety, we could be shaped by God's abundance? What if we could lean out of our limited lives and into God's limitlessness? What would that look like? How would your life be different? I think that... uh, There's a lot of practices we have in in our faith, and not just the Christian faith, but all sorts of religions have their own religious practices, and some of them overlap. We have spiritual practices of prayer. We have spiritual practices of fasting. Forgiveness is a spiritual practice. Trust me, it really is. Uh, These are practices. I think Sabbath is also a practice, and it's a practice that God actually commanded. It's a practice that Jesus took very seriously, And I think it's a practice that we could take seriously as well. I believe it would have the power to transform us and to transform our community. So in closing, our human existence is marked by anxiety. And we live in a world where there feels like there's never, ever enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough power. There's not enough. 
We could run around like the Israelites, picking up manna or trying to pick manna when we should be resting. We can make ourselves crazy. We can make ourselves busy trying to do, do, do and hold all of it together ourselves. Or we can let go for a time, for a day, for a few hours, for a period of Sabbath. We can let go and we can trust that God is in charge. We don't have to be. And I think ultimately that's what Sabbath affirms. It affirms that we are God's people, that we are ultimately trusting in God. And we trust that God has a plan and a purpose and we don't have to hold it all together because we trust that God is in charge. Let's close with a word of prayer. Gracious God, you have given us this command of Sabbath, and we have so often failed to live into it. Lord, we pray that you will turn our hearts, uh, that you will uh, turn our minds. Show us how we can practice Sabbath. Show us how we can practice it in small ways and in large ways and allow it to transform us so that we can be more faithful followers of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.